0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 289, and today's guest is Roger Desai, co founder and CEO of Prove. There are so many companies that have been born out of the mobile revolution, and some of these companies, while looking back, seem so obvious. But in the early days of mobile, I'm talking pre iPhone, pre app store days, it was the risk takers like Roger who set out to solve really difficult problems that set the stage for the future. Whether if it was leveraging mobile phones for microfinance in emerging markets, or co-founding Rave Wireless, which had lots of early, interesting mobile use cases, which we talk about, Roger thinks big, and it's these bold ideas where his companies make an impact. Today, Roger is building Prove, a fast-growing company that is driving the future of digital identity. Over 1,000 enterprise customers use Prove's platform to process 20 billion customer requests annually across multiple industries. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a discussion around consumer fraud and how tech companies should think differently about their approach to security, Roger's background story and getting his career started, plus what led him down the path of starting his first company, lots of stories about his prior companies, Rave, Mobile Wireless, and Vetro. All the details about Prove in terms of how the company's technology works and the current stage of the company. Advice on scaling a startup and how your value should factor into your business and pricing model and so much more. Okay, quick side note. We have some really exciting news to share. The team at VentureFizz has just launched a new website called Just Product Management Jobs we are combining laser-focused job postings for product managers with high-value blog content that will be written by expert contributors covering topics around career advice and the latest trends and best practices in the product management industry. So if you are a product manager looking for a new opportunity or if you are hiring product managers, go to justproductmanagementjobs.com and you'll get all the details there. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Roger. Roger, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Keith. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, you know, you're uh, have started multiple companies that have made a major impact. And uh, I'm actually familiar with you know, the, two of the companies very, very closely from being in the Boston tech scene for a while. Rave Wireless was there. I think it was in New York and Boston. And I remember Vetro, which we're going to talk about. But um, before we get into your background story, I did want to talk about something that I know is something that I think about a lot more than maybe I did a couple of years ago, and that mm-hmm. is digital fraud, right? So as consumers, I think there was a stat that I read out there that in 21, consumers lost 5.8 billion due to f- digital fraud, which you see numbers like that. It's just like staggering. Uh, there's all these breaches you hear about every single if not day, week, month of uh, you know some systems getting hacked and identity has been floated out there. What can consumers do to help protect themselves against digital fraud? You know, I, I
1: we get that question a lot. And I think the way to think about it is um, it's really maybe not something consumers can do. It's really helping all the places that consumers do business. The root of the problem really is that consumers are part of the security process. Like we have to answer questions, we have to respond to text messages. Um, you know, we have to do things to secure ourselves. And I think that's kind of the, the root of the problem. Like the consumers shouldn't be involved. Like we shouldn't have to remember passwords or get text messages with codes. And remember a street we used to live on. Like that's the root of the problem. You know, the basis of and a lot of things I've done in the past is just kind of leveraging the power that already exists in the way the phones work. And to so we just think about you know, how your phone works. You never have to like log into your phone like other than like, passcode, but like if you took your phone anywhere in the world, it just works, and it doesn't matter if there's you know if your phone company doesn't exist outside the U.S., uh, your phone works. It's easy to use, it's secure, and it's private, kind of all at the same time, and that's mainly because the consumer is not involved in the security process.
0: So that you know, you mentioned passwords, like like that that's a mess too, and like are, do you think we'll get to the point where we can be a passwordless? society like with or tech like it just seems like it's a it's a thing that just doesn't go away like how do we move away from passwords
1: yeah again i go back to like there are already lots of services that we take for granted that have no passwords like your phone like you don't again uh, need to log into verizon to make a call on the network and that's mainly because the internet wasn't built with identity in mind and so we're kind of making up for that by all the layers of stuff we you know, make consumers go through, but the phone world was built with identity in mind, like the I and SIM card, it you know, stands for identity. So there's there's lots of examples where we kind of don't have any issues and it's all it's always kind of like um, easy to use, secure, private, all at the same time. So it's really just trying to take a lot of the learnings and technologies from the phone world and kind of bringing them to the web uh, because it, it, it already points to the future um, in terms of not needing passwords at all.
0: Uh, yeah, I know there are some startups that are working on this. So hopefully we'll get there in relatively yeah. soon. I don't know. Hopefully soon. We'll see. But all right, let's, let's rewind the clock. So uh, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child?
1: Uh, so I grew up in uh, central New Jersey. Uh, I was born in India and I came when I was four. Um, and uh, as a child, all I thought about was baseball. And so I played baseball uh, growing up and so it's kind of math or baseball. And that was all I did for my youth.
0: <laughs> what led you to uh, study engineering in college?
1: You know, I, um, I didn't think I had any other choice. My mother said I'd have to either be a doctor or an engineer and I'm terrible at I can't find my
0: heart. So that, that probably wasn't the choice. <laughs> all but, right. But, so how'd you get your, how'd you get your career started?
1: So I, I was an engineer. I worked for general electric and Exxon mobile and, you know, um, And I didn't necessarily enjoy it. I mean, I I liked the notion of solving problems and using math and physics and and those things to solve problems. Um, But one day I was listening to the radio and I heard um, someone uh, named Muhammad Yunus talk about microfinance. And I was just blown away. I'd never heard of the concept. And I just had to like pull over from the side of the road and listen to the rest of the program. And eventually I tracked him down and I was just... um, just so amazed by uh what he was doing essentially he found that if you gave uh villagers in developing countries a small loan uh the repayment rate was nearly hundred percent so if you gave six unrelated women a loan they'd pay you back 100 percent of the time but those women often didn't know what kind of businesses to start and so I launched my first company that essentially helped uh, I was a nonprofit that helped other nonprofits solve problems and uh and that was my first kind of entrepreneurial adventure and I was just so excited about like the art of being an entrepreneur that uh I uh, quickly left the engineering world
0: all right let's talk about some of the other companies that you've you founded so um what led you down the path of starting Rave? you
1: know the the thing that I did with uh, Grameen Bank um as I mentioned, if you loan uh six to eight unrelated women uh, money, they pay back nearly hundred percent of the time. the problem that uh typically existed was that, you know, women you know, were traditionally not trained in countries like Bangladesh to do you know to learn basic skills even to be educated so they didn't know what kind of business to start and so one of the challenges uh, that we helped to solve was you know what if there was a kind of a business off the shelf that they could just um, you know almost like a franchise that they could launch in their village and um many things were tried the one that was most novel was giving them a cell phone and so in 1998, imagine giving a villager a cell phone that they can essentially use to rent out to other villagers and become like the local operator. But these are villages that have no, el- no electricity and no cell phone towers. So the challenge of like a cell phone that you had to, you know, use solar to power and Vsats for connectivity. But I just saw firsthand the societal you know, impact that the phone could have. It, it just changed the village overnight. It became a way that connected to the rest of the world. And so everything I've done is kind of based on that first initial insight of this. The phone was was going to be a way that you know, everyone's lives would change. It have huge societal implications. Um, and so that's what kind of got me on my journey.
0: And it was fun kind of going through the history of Rave because, again, the context. This was what year when you started the company?
1: Uh, I think Rave was started in um, around 2001.
0: And... It was a different world right there was no app store <laughs> so you were dealing with carriers and handset manufacturers to get apps on their phone which was really hard to do
1: yeah yeah um know, yeah, the premise i think again going back to what we learned from grameen was the phone could just change a village now imagine instead of just making a phone call if you um you know, the app store didn't exist at the time but if imagine you had channels that gave you a way to connect to your larger community. So if you were out of college, you'd see where all the buses were because they move on little maps that could track the buses. So you wouldn't have to go out and wait in the cold if the bus wasn't going to be there for 20 minutes. Uh, you could find out what local deals are available at restaurants if it's your birthday. You could see if there is an accident nearby that would, you know, things that would affect uh, how you lived your day and how you planned your day. Um, there were a few safety channels that we thought were pretty novel. One was you know, if you're walking home to uh, your dorm room and it's two in the morning, uh, you know, if you'll save, you set a timer and it goes off. If you don't turn it off, then your location and profile gets sent directly to campus safety. So, you know, they know to go look for you. And, you know, we launched Rave right before the Virginia Tech shooting. And unfortunately, that that really just took over the the uh, the mission of the company that uh, Rave became not a way to connect to your community just for how to live on campus and enjoy the, the best side of the campus. Uh, but it became a way that you could um, have another way to protect yourself for different things like an active shooter on a campus. In fact, then Rave essentially is a homeland security company now. It uh uh many, in fact, most colleges, universities, and many cities now use Rave.
0: Yeah, I mean the impact it's had is tremendous. I mean, I mean the company, you know, fast forward 2022, it was acquired by Motorola Solutions and it's just been you know so impactful in terms of that emergency response. Uh, and letting communities know what's going on that they should be aware of, but you know, pushing that aside, the early days I was just fascinated because if you unbundled everything you were doing, as you were just talking about, know, yeah, this is a flip phone type of app, right? Like this is, yeah. and this was doing location awareness, online media. Uh, you were talking about you know restaurants, maps of buses. How many companies yeah. have spawned out that have been unbundled? What you guys were doing at a very early stage of the mobile you know, revolution.
1: Yeah. We had, you know, one of our channels was essentially what Twitter is. We could put your status, what you're doing. Um, you know, let's say you were sleeping you stayed out late. You didn't want anyone to call you. So that was your status update. We had a version of Uber. We had a version of Groupon. We had a version of, uh, a lot of different, uh, it was definitely too early for many of those things. Uh, but the, but the use cases were there. We would, you know, mm-hmm. the students would tell us the kinds of things that they wanted. One cool one was, um, a half slice. And what that meant is uh, if you could only afford half a pizza, uh, you would say what you would want. And you say, well, what do you want in your half? And, and some person, some other part of the campus would then tell you you know, what they would buy. And then you get to meet someone and share a pizza with them. So a lot of very novel applications to weave the community closer together.
0: That is amazing. That sounds like that should be a, an app now. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. We're providing ideas to entrepreneurs too. Um, but yeah, it's just I love I'm such a historian of tech and just love hearing stories of that. Like, you know, so many companies have done what you packaged into this app and that flip phone, but it was you know early to market. All right, so Vetro, what was vetro? You
1: know, at vetro, we um, you know mobile was was a brand new thing. We knew it would kind of, as I said, uh, change the world. I saw that happen in rural Bangladesh, of course it could happen everywhere else. Um, and it was also location-based, um, the, the apps that Vetro focused on, and again, we're probably just too early was trying to enable, uh, new workflows for, uh, like folks in the field, like salespeople, uh, service people. And so how you could kind of like, let's say, um, you're a pharmaceutical rep and you have 40 doctors you call on, well, what's the next best one to call on based on your location, the, the times a day that they're at the office, so essentially, was a logistical, like logistics on routing people and things, so that you could um, uh, maximize utilization. Uh, that's another place where we had a one of the big verticals we focused on uh, were black cars. So now we didn't have the consumer side of it; we only had like where are the cars and what's the next best car to send based on someone who called into a central dispatch service. So basically, kind of kind of in the real world logistics to wrap people in
0: things. Yeah. Like I think a Boston coach was one of your customers, right? Yeah. in fact, That that
1: was, yeah, that was our our first. I remember at the time uh, we had some pretty well-known VCs and they were like, well, how big can this black car thing get? I mean, it's (laughs) such a small industry There's the (laughs) Russell market is tiny. And we're like, yeah, you're probably right. But uh, but of course, Uber showed us that it's a, it could just change the way people even bought cars and whether you, you know, you even needed a car.
0: Yeah. Very true. So, so how far, like, cause eventually I think the the product ended up being like in a, a mobile extension to Salesforce, right?
1: Yeah. That was one of the uh, use cases that really worked, which is again, trying to make sales, uh, sales folks in the field more productive. Uh, one of the things that we learned there that um, is probably a lesson for all entrepreneurs is, you know, we built a very tiny relational database because back then phones had such little memory and processing power. And, uh, and so we're very proud of this like tiny little, I think it was a 17 K relational database, but we failed to consider that Moore's law like changes that, like that intellectual property was so amazing, but it got less amazing and less valuable over time because phones of course got more and more powerful. So, you know, one lesson I've learned that I've definitely used since then is uh, when you're going to build IP, you want to make sure it gets more valuable over time and not less valuable.
0: Got it. That's good, good, good advice. All right. Well, let's talk about Prove. So what's the background story of that company, kind of like the initial foundation of what you were setting out to do? And uh, how did that company get started? Because from what I gathered, it was founded as within the walls of RRE, a, a VC firm.
1: Yeah. And RRE was a backer in, a, uh, in previous companies. So we, we uh, again, going back to like, you know, what else can the phone do to kind of change the way we live and the way society functions. Uh, There was a use case that we were just fascinated by at the time. We had a friend in Italy uh, who just got an iPhone. And what was really funny is that uh, he couldn't buy anything for it. So he couldn't buy an iTunes or an app, let alone any e-commerce. And that's because at the time, only 8% of Italians had a credit or debit card. And it hasn't changed a lot since then. Like most of the world doesn't have a credit card. And we just thought it was fascinating that here you have like an amazing invention called the iPhone, but you can't buy anything for it. Um, But that same friend could go on the weekend to Spain to see a soccer match. Um, Even one weekend, he went to Egypt to see a match and his phone would work. And uh, and that's not surprising. That's how roaming works. But if you think about it, like when, you know, uh, when Stefan went to Egypt for that soccer match, he connected to a local phone company who, you know, doesn't take euros. So they wanted their own local currency. And he was able to transact with them in the sense of you know, making phone calls while he's in Egypt. So it occurred to us that um, what if we just kind of repurposed the roaming clearing and settlement system you know, as a payment system for e-commerce? So said another way, um, if you wanted to buy like an iTunes um, while he was sitting on his couch in Rome, what if we burned exactly amount of airtime uh, to pay for that one iTunes? As if he was roaming, not in Egypt, but on the fictitious land of iTunes. Mm. And uh, so we repurposed the roaming system to uh, allow you to buy things. And if you wanted to buy more things, just go to the corner shop and put more cash on this phone and you can talk with that cash or text or buy things. And so that was was the initial use case we focused on.
0: Very interesting. So how did that progress and how did it eventually evolve to where it is today?
1: So on one hand, uh, it worked phenomenally well because the roaming, clearing and settlement system uh is amazing it's cross-border it's cross-currency it's real-time it's you know there's no password like it just works and uh it's private like whenever you're roaming in another country the phone company that you're roaming on they don't know your name or social security number but yeah you're transacting with them and but if you ever care to look at your phone bill you'll never see something on there that you didn't do because so your sim card is authenticating everything you do you can't say the same thing for your bank statement there could be things on there that you didn't do and so yeah, it worked. Quite well, And a lot of digital um, players like the Googles and the Facebooks the world uh, were really infatuated by the capability of leveraging uh, airtime uh, for fiat currency. Uh, What was funny is I showed um, some folks a demo. I think we were working with Angry Birds at the time and how, you know, Angry Birds is free. But if you want to buy something, you hit buy and then you go to a, a credit card form. And of course, most of the world doesn't have a credit card. So in our version, you hit buy and it just bought it. So I showed that to the uh, person that ran Chase at the time, and he was like, "Well, that's amazing! Like, how did you do that?" And I explained the airtime stuff. He's like, oh, "No, no, no! I, I don't care about the airtime. Like, we're a bank. Underwriting is not the hard part. We just can't figure out who anyone is in digital. Like, hmm. how do you know whose airtime to burn?" And I was like, "Oh, because you know, you do a SIM authentication. and you know, I made it seem like that was an obvious thing, which it wasn't." <clears throat> and he's like, "Huh? That's really interesting." Because you know we just can't figure out who anyone is online, and if people tell us they're someone, well, we don't know if that's true, and you know, and that's the kind of the game we all go through when we try to do things online. So anyway, he called me the next day and said he wanted to buy the company, and, uh, and I didn't know <laughs> why there was nothing to buy.
0: Right.
1: And uh, but he saw uh, the novel nature of how we can authenticate something. Oh, by the way, we can borrow the airtime. So in his view, chop off the airtime stuff and just authenticate every transaction online. And that was his uh kind of I think interest in the company.
0: So let's fast forward to today. So what you know, the, the the company was called Payphone, but you rebranded to Prove. Yeah. So 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 what is Prove?
1: Well, in that example where uh, it was Payphone because we're essentially allowing you to pay your phone, you use your airtime. So it was a kind of an app name for the use case that we worked on. Um when when Chase uh, wanted to like saw an interest in the company. In their view, it's like, look, you can either you know pay for digital goods this way, which is a certain you know size market, or if you focus on authentication, it's in a massive market. It doesn't have to be a digital good; it could be anything. Mm-hmm. It could be you know using authentication, to open an account, to move money, to log in, and so the use cases are um, much. like There's many more of them. The total digital market is much much bigger. Um, the uh, The acquisition didn't uh, didn't work in the end. Uh, and then the person who led the acquisition was also the chairman of a company called Early Warning. And Early Warning, uh, for those who don't know, today, it's owned by the seven large banks. And they run services like Zelle, if you do Zelle, it's an Early Warning service. And they do an amazing amount of uh, great work to keep the uh, banking system safe across the banks. Uh, and so the Early Warning banks, uh, there were five at the time invested in us, the Early Warning. And then we started working with using our authentication system for banks. So, whenever you log into a bank, we're likely one of the authenticators that's letting you in. Uh, and uh, and we got to be kind of deployed in a lot of, in most of the kind of major banks in the US. Um, after a while, though, uh, um, the banks decided uh, to take on new use cases like Zelle. And then at that point, we already had, we learned kind of how the banks uh, used our products and we essentially bought early warning out of the contract. At that point, we could start start selling directly to the market. Uh, and it was an apt time to rebrand the company since PayFund wasn't the right name for it. So essentially it, it was the same thing we started with where we could authenticate who you we were and then burn the airtime. We just chopped out the airtime and just focused on the authentication, which is uh, proved was just a much more apt description of what we did at that point.
0: So just, I'm just curious, like how is it, you know, Identifying me as a consumer because it's it can't be just username and password. It must be like behavior, you know, like things that you're doing. On, like like a, like how deep does it go?
1: Yeah, the the way to think about it is um like again, if you can take your phone anywhere in the world and it just works and it's you don't have to identify who you are. Well, how is it doing that? And so if you think of like the um the EMV chip that's in a credit card that's made credit cards really safe to use now. Like the folks who make an EMV chip also make SIM cards. And so the way to think about it is we're just leveraging the authentication of a SIM card. It's it's 120-bit encryption. It's quite powerful. And so the really novel thing that Prove does is we tie real-world identities to those SIM cards. So if, for example, you wanted to open an account at XYZ Bank, you can just type in your phone number. You get a text. You click on the link, and that's your entire application Mm -hmm. because we know who owns and operates that phone. And therefore, um, uh, just by that authentication event, we can kind of supply your identity. Now, we don't store things like names and addresses. We use kind of fancy things called identity tokens. But in effect, what it allows us to do is be super accurate because it's not a guess that your phone did it. Once a SIM card is authenticated, we know this phone did it. And then you know we know who owns and operates the phone. So that allows us to to help create accounts, help you log in, help you make a payment, things like that.
0: Now, the you know as part of that rebrand, you raised hundred billion dollars in capital. So, what's the current stage of the company in terms of you know number of employees or whatever details you can share?
1: Yeah, you know, we you know we are not seeing a slowdown despite the uh, kind of macro economy. Um, a lot of our use cases uh, are really helped to drive revenue. Um, in one case, you know if you can make it so all all you need is a phone to apply for an account uh, and we're not asking who you are, you can't lie to us. So we can reduce a lot of friction. We can avoid you lying by not asking who you are because we can do that through our authentication. So in some cases, it generates nearly a billion dollars of incremental revenue for a bank per year. Yeah, because uh, we're reducing so much friction. You don't have to put in your name, your address, all these things. And again, the bank's not even sure if that's even you doing that. And so there's, in a market where people are trying to drive more revenue, uh, you know, we're a great way to do those types of things. Uh, So we're about, I think, just under 400 folks. We'll hire uh, more this year. I think right now we plan to hire 90 folks uh, this year. Uh, We're in the U.S., but we launched uh, Canada, the U.K., India, and Brazil. You know, today we've tokenized 90% of the U.S. adult population, you know, the 5 billion adults on the planet our, our mission is to tokenize them all and you know anyone that wants to use our service um uh can and if they don't want to of course that's that's their decision and so um about a thousand and customers um uh many banks about 18 of the top 20 banks now uh so yeah that's a thumbnail of us
0: the company's in high growth mode and continues to grow which is awesome to hear about so like what's the what's it like working there what's the culture like
1: you know, obviously COVID has, has challenged all of us uh, in terms of defining a consistent culture. What we strive for is we try to be, you know, uh, like we're really obviously competitive and uh, we all work very hard, but we try to do so in a way that it's, you know, we're just like nice people. Like we want people to succeed and grow. You know, if people feel like they can't grow It It doesn't matter if we're really doing well financially or we solve really tough problems. You know, <laughs> it, it's, uh, you know, growth is what makes kind of, you know, people want to stay somewhere and and so the culture is one that we we uh, we're collaborative, we're friendly, we uh we have we try to have a, a common mission and ultimately we're just trying to do as much as we can to make people feel like they can you know thrive and grow here and not have to you know and if they look elsewhere maybe like we've had folks that have left and started companies in the same space that we've you know we've helped finance and so we kind of think of it like you know if you're gonna join this industry and join prove Hopefully you can make it uh, something where you're there for the next, you know, for a big chunk of your career, whether it's with us or just in the industry in general.
0: And I think that says a lot, like what you just said, because I think, you know, when I think of companies that you never want to lose great talent, but there's a way of supporting great talent when they do leave to build a company or something like that. And I just think, you know, HubSpot, I always admired how the founders thought of that. They would invest in those companies, right? Or, you know, the, the founding team. So I just think it's very, very wise versus having the, you know, opposite point of view of, uh, you know, you're on the other side of the fence now. So that's, that says a lot about your culture. Now you, you've scaled multiple companies, uh, you know, been an entrepreneur many times over. So when you think back, what are some of those biggest lessons learned of, you know, scaling a startup to the point where it's, uh, you know, hitting critical mass? Uh, yeah, in the beginning,
1: obviously the biggest challenge is, um, in a lot of, a lot of Startups fail because their founders don't get along. So, you know, as I say, success is many fathers and failure is an orphan. And, you know, when there's a bump in the road, then that creates, you know, if you don't have a solid foundation, I think that's, you know, that's typically it's hard to scale off of that. So, you know, getting the right founding team um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, that's just one other person, maybe two other people, but it's it's typically not, you know, five to ten. So a small team that you can really kind of get through the tough times with. And then really being honest about the product market fit, I think often entrepreneurs will be afraid to admit to investors or themselves that hey, it's just not working. And that doesn't mean it will never work. <clears throat> it's a matter of just um, you know, finding that product market fit. And it's very hard. It could take years. Um, you know, and uh and I knew in our case we were coming with an asset of like how, you know, how phones authenticate that we knew had some fit, we didn't know where. Uh, so we knew the the kind of the what, but not the why. And eventually we found the why with a lot of help. And then I think um, focusing on the unit economics, which um, is probably the third most important thing. Like, you know, you um, you gotta make sure that you add enough value that you can command a margin that can build a real company and can afford to build a real company. And then it's just about getting great people around you. And it's, it's kind of in that sequence So, um, once we found like product market fit, once we found that we could add enough value with uh, what we added to the equation that we can get a great margin by uh, for every, you know, for each transaction, then it was about just finding the best people we could. And at first, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to attract great, like great talent that isn't, uh, unless they're very young and, and are okay with not making a lot of money but eventually the kind of folks we hire now they're you know they have plenty of choices of where they can work even in this environment and uh you know and so to be able to trap them we really have to provide them a place where they can really thrive and grow and kind of almost give them the tools and get out of the way so it's, those are the kind of i think sequence of things to to get to a place where you can start scaling
0: well i'd like to unpack a couple of points that you just made so the unit economics so how did you figure out how to build the business model around what you're doing. Cause I would imagine that must've been uh, you know, do, do we do this as a, you know, more of an enterprise license? Is it transaction based? Like there was probably multiple options that you could have pursued, but obviously you, you made a, a, a wise decision.
1: Yeah. In our, our case, and I think this is true in most cases. Um, if you look at the value you generate and you just have to keep iterating on it. So the example is you, um, if we can make it so that um our tokens uh can create an account with like you know, one click versus many clicks, then you're gonna get you know more accounts opened. And then it's you know, then it's not that hard to say, well, how much is an account worth? You know, maybe a credit card account is worth X, a deposit account is worth Y, you know, an auto loan is worth Z. And so it becomes a lot simpler if you can just say, uh, well, gee, if I if normally for every hundred people that show up to create an account at a given bank, let's say only 20, make it through because of the friction, you know, if we can get, you know, 40 through, well, that's, you know, that's 20 more and each one's worth X. So that gives you like the value side. And then it's a question of how much can you command for the value in the early days, probably maybe you can only command 10% of that value. Um, and over time, as you have more customers and more of, um, Uh, of a track record, you can command more of the amount of value you're creating. And then we had a notion of uh, like the spirit of how we want to do things. In our space, I think that we wanted to think very differently. Most companies in our space, they sell on the basis of fear. They say, you know, there's a lot of fraud. It's getting worse. Like, you know, it's a bit like saying, frisk everyone that comes into your store because they could be a thief. You know, that's obviously not going to get you a lot of sales (laughs) if you do that right um and so the question is um like if we could have the business model be aligned to our customers meaning like if we make you money then we want to share in that if we cost you money like logging in like you want to make sure the right people are logging in but that's not a revenue generation thing directly so that we want to make predictable so we make that subscription so if we make you money let's you know take a piece of the value we're creating if we cost you money which we tend not to focus too much on use cases like that but then we want to make a predictable and minimize the cost as much as we can, uh, because our clients are making money. So that's kind of the we found the value we created from there. We can look at you know how much we can command the value, and then we have a kind of stance on on pricing that aligns, I think, to our customer business, so that we're aligned together.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously the value is there, as you mentioned before, you're driving revenue for these institutions, not, you know, it's 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 a revenue generation uh, type of thinking versus a cost center. So mm-hmm. uh, the other point you mentioned is, you know, the right team. So at what point do you start to really build uh, you know, that executive leadership team. I'm talking like the C suite, right? Your chief marketing officer, your chief revenue officer, your chief people officer. You know, at what point, And I know it can vary depending on company and but just kind of general principles of when should you start to hire that true C-suite into a company?
1: Um, in my view, and I I've kind of learned this uh, through I making as many mistakes as you can. I I think the first one is to get a great uh, financial partner. Like we have a great CFO, you know, Tom Fitzsimmons at Prove, and you know, like Tom took on pretty much every task, uh, well beyond what like you think finance would do. So legal, compliance, uh, HR, and I think, um, but the reason why that matters is you have to just you know if you're going to be laser focused on your unit economics and the value you're creating, you can't do that. Uh, with a, a financial partner, unless you are that financial person, right? You need a kind of a, a product slash salesperson, which I can fill the role in, role as, and then you need a financial partner. Um, and then you can get the right to expand that. Uh, but if you can't kind of figure out the kind of value you're creating and and really get a sense for that and get referenced customers off of that, you almost don't haven't earned the right to start building out the rest of the team. Uh, pretty soon after that, I think marketing is important because... You know, so um, Yuka has been with us for many years and she was a one-person marketing engine. Um, but that's important because you know, ultimately we're all telling stories. And if your story isn't clear, then, you know, people have short attention spans. So how you tell the story, uh, how well you communicate things. And it's a journey. I mean, we got into a point where I think our message is pretty clear now. Uh, but that's a 10-year story, a 10-year work in progress to kind of, you know, like, get to the name prove. Like, I wouldn't have thought approved day one. And, uh, but it's getting great people like Yuka that can help you with, uh, you know, how do you tell the story? How do you communicate your value? Uh, and then the other pieces kind of naturally come together as you scale.
0: Well, you, so Yuka would, so she was your first marketing hire?
1: Uh, I think, yes. But if not, the most important one.
0: Yeah. Well, it's just, it's one of those where it's like, as a startup, like, okay, we need someone who's strategic, yet someone that can actually execute too. And that's that's always a tricky, tricky hire to find someone that can kind of think strategically yet be tactical at the same time.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. And she was able to do uh that and beyond, like all the different kinds of marketing functions. And, and as a story kind of got more defined, it became easier to tell it and and it resonated more. And we closed more business and you know, it really got us on our way.
0: All right. So what are three apps you can't live without?
1: I like most people, I compartmental, compartmentalize my life in such a way that it depends on what, what day it is. So if it's <laughs> uh like if it's during the day, it's probably uh CNBC, Twitter, and email. Um and uh and that's you know, probably most my most important apps. And uh if it's the weekend, um it's probably ways of them driving my son to tennis somewhere and so it's probably like a weather app a driving app and you know uh and probably the tennis app that tracks his progress
0: what do you like to do for fun outside of work obviously there's a lot of family time it sounds like but what else do you like to do
1: uh you know i just i love um it's always you know i think we're in just an exciting time it's a it's a scary time for lots of folks especially today which would have what's happening in the market but it's uh we're on the precipice of just these amazing changes, whether it's AI or fusion or you know, like, you know, my son who's now 14, like, you know, the world is gonna be very different. Um, and the skill sets that they will have well, they will need will be very different, and the opportunities will be very different. So I kind of want to always stay young and and uh and so I try to keep up with everything I can on what's you know shaping the the next decade. So uh yeah, anytime I can get on learning about um even the new developments in physics are pretty amazing. So whether it's something in quantum entanglement or uh, AI or fusion, it's just that's all kind of super interesting. And then I love sports, so I watch a lot of sports. And so you know, my, my family, sports, and like learning what I can, that's pretty much my day outside of work.
0: Well, Roger, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously, all the great work you've been doing as far as the different companies you've been building uh, and obviously all the great advice.